You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Hear God's word from Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to this portion of the scriptures, we ask for your help in understanding these things. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work in us. I pray that as we sit under these words, that you would do a work of power by your Spirit in our lives, that we would be shaped more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. We ask that you would give us faith in the hearing of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the amazing and even baffling things about the Bible and about the God of the Bible is that this God, the God that's revealed in the Bible, is apparently uh, not very concerned with being seen in obvious ways in our world. This God is largely unseen in the world that he's made, hidden. Now, I don't mean to say that there isn't evidence of God in the world. Uh, There is. In, In one sense, we can say that it's absolutely clear that there is a God and that he's made us from the things that have been made. In one sense, we can say it's clear. Um, God made us. We owe him all of our thanks and praise. But at the same time, this God, the God revealed in the scriptures, remains, in a sense, unseen. Unseen, hidden, somewhere behind or maybe in the shadows of history's unfolding. Not breaking in everywhere in our history, in our daily lives, where we can just point out and say, there he is, or or, he's here. Uh, And then where he does break in in history for most of us, our only access to those points of God's inbreaking into history is through ancient written resources. Right? I'm talking about the Bible, right? which can seemingly easily be dismissed. Right? The God of the Bible has not made himself obvious in a certain sense. He's not whisking around as an invisible spirit or as a visible spirit, writing messages in the sky or manipulating physical reality and material reality to induce people into believing. That's not the way that the God of the Bible works. In fact, this God's revelation almost invariably 
comes to us veiled, veiled, veiled under the human, uh, the creaturely, the ordinary. Again, not by means of divine words written in the sky, but through human voices, human writings, not by means of supernatural experiences, as in going above and beyond and without nature, uh, but typically, ordinarily, through natural experiences, not by means of unmediated revelation to the, of the divine, whatever that would mean, but in and through, most uh, centrally, in and through the flesh and blood humanity of the man, Jesus Christ, son of Mary and Joseph of Nazareth. One, as we find in this text, who is unrecognized to the people of his own hometown. In the words of John the Apostle, he is the one who was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It's quite a claim that we see in this text. Right? The people around whom Jesus grows up do not recognize him for all that he is. And there's something important about this claim in this passage as we consider today this matter of his own home and hometown's response of unbelief. Okay, as we consider this matter of unbelief and of people who take offense at Jesus. Okay, there's something important about this claim of God's revelation coming to us in a veiled manner. Okay. We wonder why people don't believe. Okay. Uh, why people don't believe in Jesus or in God, in the God of the Bible, in the Bible itself. Why, why are more people not Christians, we might ask. Uh, what, what, what is it that keeps people from believing? And I might ask more personally to you, what is it that keeps you from believing? Uh, from believing wholeheartedly, from, from, from trusting these things with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Uh, what keeps you and I from believing? What are the sources of doubts that keep us from seeing the wisdom and the power of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And my guess is that we could come up with a whole list of reasons for why we don't believe, okay? or why unbelief and doubt remain with us, even as Christians. Right? Um, we could say, well, maybe it's because uh, we haven't heard, we haven't seen, we haven't uh, come to know the God revealed in the Bible. Okay? And this is why people don't believe. Is, is we, we just don't know. When we don't hear, we don't know, and that's why we don't believe. Or, or people haven't considered the evidence, we might say. Right? We have people, the reason that our neighbors don't believe in the God of the Bible is because they haven't considered the evidence in the Bible. Uh, or, the, or the historical evidence, uh, making a case for Christ as the living Son of God. People just haven't considered the evidence. Or, or, or maybe we would say that they just, the reason that people don't believe or that we might struggle in believing is because we haven't encountered the living Jesus. We just haven't encountered him. And this is why we struggle to believe or why we think it's strange that anybody would believe. And while all these factors can be real factors, to be sure, in a person's unbelief, there's an unsettling truth in this passage which goes deeper which is that actually people can see, hear, even encounter the living Jesus. They can consider his wisdom on display. They can see that he's wise. 
that he's done mighty works, that he's done miracles. They can see all of this, even have this real encounter, again, with the living Jesus. They can still have all of this and yet not believe. This is precisely what we see in our text today, that people can know Jesus, have the evidence of his wisdom and his works, his claims, and still refuse to believe. And this is not a nice truth. It's not, it's not a nice thing to say about the Christian faith because of what it says about us. And what it says about us is this, that our eyes, our eyes, even an encounter with the living Jesus, our eyes are blind and they need to be healed so that we can see rightly. Our ears are deaf and they need to be healed so that we can hear and understand rightly. Our hearts are sick and they need to be healed in order to understand and to know as we ought to know. We can't see. We're a people who can't hear. We can't understand as we ought to. And more than that, the chief reason why we don't see and believe is not that we haven't seen, again, as we see in this passage, it's not that we haven't seen or don't know, but rather because we don't want to know and we don't want to believe. This is the flow of our text this morning that will follow. That Jesus reveals the wisdom and the power of God. Second, that our response to this revelation of his wisdom and power is resistance, we take offense. And third, that he then, his response is to then give us over, as we take offense, to give us over to our unbelief. First, Jesus reveals the wisdom and power of God. You can look with me at verses 53 and 54. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It's something that unites many of the world religions okay, around our globe. The idea that Jesus of Nazareth was a man of great wisdom and mighty works. Christians and Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists, Baha'i, even early Greek and Gnostic Folks around the time of Jesus and following the time of Jesus, the majority opinion about, among all these groups was that the best way to understand the evidence around Jesus, okay, the best way to understand these stories, the history, the life, the teachings of Jesus, was not to label him as a fraud, but to label him at the very least as a man of wisdom and mighty works. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you're a committed Christian or even a convinced atheist, the best historical evidence will lead us to say that, at the very least, that powerful things happened in and around the life of Jesus, the events of his life, his death, and even this reported resurrection. Now, you may dismiss in advance that resurrection can happen, that miracles can happen. Right? I mean, that may be your approach to history. Uh, but to that I'd say, first of all, that's not actually a very serious historical perspective um, to superimpose your own present beliefs on what happened in the past, but rather we should engage history on its own terms. Uh, seek to understand what's actually there and interpret it accordingly. And given that there were people who clearly claimed that the resurrected Christ appeared to them and they'd even seen him die, and given that they claimed this 
orally and in writing even around the time that this happened so that eyewitnesses could verify or deny that which was being written and proclaimed. There are parts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, for example, where you know, there are people still alive today. Go ask them. Go ask them about these things. These are the things that we claim to be true. And given that these same eyewitnesses were subsequently willing to die, even die torturous deaths without denying the fact that they had experienced the risen Christ before their own eyes, and given that many across various nations, times, and places have claimed similar experiences of encountering the living, the living and risen Christ, would it not be something at least worth considering, at least worth considering that Jesus, whatever you think of him, was in fact a historical man full of wisdom and who did, in fact, do mighty works. But here's the thing. Even if all of us, again, whether you're Christian or not, listening today, even if all of us come to a place where we agree that Jesus is a man of great wisdom and mighty works, we're actually not necessarily any closer to belief in him. We're not necessarily any closer. And what we're pressed to grapple with here in this passage is this, that somebody can see and know that Jesus is a man of wisdom and mighty works, but still fail to believe in him, to put their trust in him. And here lies one of the hard facts and great mysteries of the Christian faith. That in Jesus, God himself stands before us. In Jesus, he stands before us and we do not recognize him. We don't recognize the God who stands before us in the person of Jesus. And again, it's not because Jesus fails to reveal the Father. The problem is not with him it's not that he's insufficiently revealing himself, but the problem is that we refuse to see him. We can stand astonished, but we can remain in unbelief. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Why? Why did they respond this way? How? How, in the face of Jesus wise words and mighty works, can anyone respond with unbelief? You know, we might think, if we were in that position, we would have believed, right? If you or I actually got to meet the living Jesus, the, the flesh and blood Jesus of Nazareth at that time, if we'd been able to interact with him, then of course we wouldn't struggle with unbelief. We would have believed. But instead, what we find here is that his own family, people who are most familiar with him, are those who did not believe, who would not believe in this Jesus, and instead took offense at him. This moves us to our second subject, that we take offense. Instead of responding in faith, we take offense. Verse 40, 54 and following. They were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas... And are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Now how does astonishment so quickly turn to offense? It seems they saw with such clarity at first. They were astonished, it says. They saw with clarity, but instead of responding in faith, what did they do? What do they do? Well, his family starts to question. Wait a minute. Where did this man get this wisdom? 
Isn't this Joseph's kid? Don't we know his mother, his brothers, his sisters? Uh, and they took offense at him. And I wonder, I wonder how we might do the same. When you catch glimpses of the power and the beauty of the revelation of God in Christ, the reality, say, of a heavenly father who's made everything and yet knows you personally, who calls you to himself, the reality of the son who reveals the father, not in great power and weakness, but in weak, uh, sorry, not in great power, but in weakness and death and suffering with and for us, the reality of the spirit who makes alive and joins us to God, what do you do when you're confronted with the truth? Um, when you catch these glimpses of the truth of the Christian faith, right, where, where, where you hear things and it resonates with you and you say, ah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is something. <laughs> He's something. Maybe you say, I don't know what to, even to make of him, but, but I hear about Jesus and, I, and there's something that resonates with the truth of God, right? Or, or something happens in your life and you say, there's something here that speaks to the truth of who God is in this revelation of God in Christ. There's, there's some correspondence here. I, I, I see that there's something there. I, I, I've, I've caught a glimpse. And the question is, when you catch these glimpses of the truth, even if only for a moment, uh, what do you do when you have these moments of sight? Do you step into this in faith? Or... Do you instead say, wait, 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 wait. It seems true. It looks true. Jesus is wise. He's done mighty works. But hold on. Isn't this Jesus just a man? Isn't this just historical fabrication? Isn't believing this stuff just going to get me in trouble, socially alienated? Isn't this all just myth? right? Bogus history that early followers of Jesus made up? Uh, how could we ever know, anyways, whether this is true? And we begin to ask questions. And instead of responding in faith with the truth that's been revealed, we, we are people who take offense. We take offense. But what's at bottom here, let's be clear, is not that we can't see. It's not that God's revelation is insufficient. Okay? The problem is not that we can't see, but instead that we are people who don't want to see. And so we come up with excuses, distractions, rational ideas to justify our unbelief. And isn't this what we do? Uh, isn't this what we do more generally when truths come our way that are uncomfortable or inconvenient. It's the parents whose kids are out of line and they got a call from the school uh, talking about how their kids are out of line, but they will not believe the teacher because they don't want to believe that their kid would be like that. Um, it's the parents who turn a blind eye to the things that they know that their kids are doing, but they don't want to believe that their kids are doing it. It's the spouse who every time you confront them, they get defensive and they say, no, that's not me. Because they don't want to believe that those things might be true of them. It's when someone offers you a solution to a problem. But it's a solution that will be inconvenient for you. You can't gain off of that solution. And so you don't want it to be true. You want to find another solution. In every case, 
Instead of seeing what's there, we're a people who are prone to taking offense at these things, revelations, truths that come to us that are inconvenient for us, and instead of seeing what's there, acting in faith, receiving what's there, we take offense. And so it is with Jesus. You might think that all of your objections to Christian faith are very rational. Uh, you know, they make sense, maybe according to secular understandings of knowledge and epistemology. It's all very rational. Um, but according to the scriptures, there's a lot more going on in our disbelief than simply rational. Our disbelief is more rooted in our rationalization than it is in rational, rationality. And some of you here, I'd imagine in a room this size, are sitting here and you have not yielded your life to God. And the problem, again, is not that he hasn't made himself sufficiently clear to you that God is owed all of your thanks and praise, that your whole life should be lived unto him. That's not the problem. The problem is not a lack of clarity. The problem is that you don't want to yield to God. You don't want to. It would be too inconvenient. It would, it would, it would mean too many changes in your life to actually have to surrender a vision of morality that is revealed in the scriptures. You don't want it to be true. And so instead, you take offense Asking, yeah, but how can Jesus really be God? Or what about God's justice to nations who have never heard? Or the problem of suffering? Or how can Jesus actually expect things like sexual purity? We have all of these things, which are all great questions. They're all good questions. They're all fair questions, things that need to be wrestled through. But when you're asking these things only to avoid yielding to God, submitting to the God who made you, walking with him in relationship with him, there's a problem. There's a problem. And you disbelieve. Or, maybe more specific to Christians here, um, this could take a much more subtle form. Right? You say you believe, and we'll tell each other that we believe. Right? We talk a good game of belief in Jesus. But then, then, when particular texts come to us, certain things that make us uncomfortable, we begin to question, again, God's wisdom. You know, sure, uh, God's word says that, say, a husband is to lay his life down for his wife uh, in order to love her as Christ loves the church. Right? Um, sure, uh, this, this implies a certain, uh, a certain call for me as a husband to pursue reconciliation when, when things are at a stalemate in a relationship and, and I need to do this or I need to take this on. Uh, but did God really say, you know, we begin to, to doubt Sure, God's word says that a wife, as a wife, I'm to submit to my husband even as to the Lord. But did God, did God really say, is this really wisdom? And we begin to question, uh, we begin to question. Uh, sure, it says that I'm to pursue purity of heart, purity of speech. But, but did God really say, and be, we begin to question. And instead of seeing and believing and following Jesus and obeying him and living by faith, we are prone to taking offense. We take offense because, again, we don't want to believe. And in these ways, we're not so different from Jesus' household and hometown. We too, we who have seen and come to know Christ by faith, maybe we've even been astonished by his wisdom and his mighty works, still we take offense. And the question then, to move to our third section is, how does Jesus then respond? 
when we respond to Jesus, his words, and his wisdom with unbelief, how does Jesus then respond to us? And what we'll find here is that he gives us over to our unbelief. There's a sense in which he gives us over to our unbelief. Uh, verse 57 and following. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now this is a warning to us. Especially to us who are familiar with Jesus and Christian faith. For those of us within the household of God. That when we choose not to see what's in front of us and not to act, not to respond in belief, what's Jesus' response? And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is quite a claim. It's an amazing thing that God, who knows all things, also responds to our unbelief. He responds to us. When we respond to him in unbelief, he responds to my unbelief by not doing many mighty works there. It's as though when we don't put to use the knowledge and the revelation that we're given, when we don't put to work the talents that we're given, it's as though we have a God who takes them away. But then when we respond to the knowledge, the revelation that we're given, more is given. Sounds kind of like a parable of talents. The temptation, of course, is to sit back and wait for God to, fir to make the first move. Right? Um, and maybe that's where you are. Uh, somewhat complacent in your, your walk with the Lord. Uh, complacent in your relationship with God, saying, God, if you do X or Y or Z, then I can respond. Right? Um, uh, we say, God, you make the first move. You reveal. You change things. You give us something uh, that we're asking for. And then, if you do, then we respond to you. And what we find in this passage and throughout the scriptures is that God will not play that game. He's not going to play that game with you. Instead, he would ask you and I today, what are those things that I've already revealed that you've chosen not to act on, that you've chosen to reject, that you've chosen to take offense at? Are you waiting to see the mighty works of God in your life? The response would be, then act in faith to what he's already shown you. Respond in faith to the revelation that's already been given. My point is not to say here that if you just work harder in the faith, then God will give you what you want. That's not, that's not the point. But what we find here in this story today is Matthew explicitly saying that belief, uh, faith, sees mighty works. It's belief, it's faith that sees mighty works. And, and unbelief that sees few mighty works. And it's worth asking, what would it look like for you today, this week, to respond to God in faith, to take steps of belief in response to what God has already made known to you. Difficult conversation, maybe. Maybe it means confessing sin to a brother or a sister or parent or child. Maybe it means pursuing reconciliation in a way that's very uncomfortable and re would require real faith in the living God to lead you and to help you to pursue such reconciliation. Maybe it means following through on a promise. Whatever it is, you can be sure that when we choose to take offense 
at Jesus, rather than believing what he's revealed, we only further alienate ourselves from him and from seeing his mighty works. He gives us over to unbelief and does not do many mighty works here because of our unbelief. Uh, to conclude, um, there's an implicit judgment that this text makes of us, and it's this. That we, we are people who should be able to recognize the everlasting God in the face of Jesus Christ. We should be able to recognize in Jesus the wisdom and the work of God, but we don't. Okay, this is the implicit judgment that this text is making of his own household, and even today extended to the household of God. That we should be able to hear the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and that this should resonate with us in our core. We should hear the offer of grace and forgiveness and life in Jesus' name, and this should sound like good news to us. This should resonate to us. We should hear the words of Jesus, his wisdom, uh, you know, through the Gospels, the stories of his wisdom and his kindness, his mercy to sinners. We should hear these stories about his involvement and commitment to the outcast in society. We should hear his announcement of God's kingdom reign, uh, of justice and peace, which he's securing in all the earth. We should hear all of these things and recognize in these words the wisdom of God. We should. We should. We should hear the reports of Jesus' miracles, and it should ring true for us. Not with skepticism, but that these are true signs of God's promise to restore, to heal, to give us the things that we very much long for as humans, to be restored, to be healed, to make new, to bring heaven to earth. And we should be able to see the eternal God in the face of Jesus Christ. We should. Whole eyes would see. Restored ears would hear. Healed hearts would understand. But instead, we say, the carpenter's son? Isn't he just an ordinary man with brothers and sisters? How do we know this isn't historical fabrication? Resurrection doesn't really happen. And we take offense at him. Because the reality is, to receive him with faith, well, it's just too inconvenient, too humbling. It gets in the way of all the things our proud and wicked hearts really want. And while our passage ends with difficult news, Jesus' unwillingness to do many miracles in the face of unbelief, the good news is that the whole story doesn't end there. The whole story doesn't end there. Because the very family, the very household and hometown that here rejects Jesus is a house and home that Jesus himself will not reject. He will not reject the ones who rejected him. And in fact, when we get to the book of Acts, we'll find that there are those in his own household gathering together post-resurrection of Jesus who are among the leading believers in Jerusalem with his own brother, Jesus' own brother James, leading the charge. Okay. The same family that rejected him at one time came to belief, and Jesus did not reject them. And here we find a good word of grace. That even when we find fault with Jesus, when we take offense at Jesus, even still, Jesus holds out grace for us. While we are committed to finding fault with him, he gives his life for us. 
While we reject him, he offers perfect and total acceptance of those who will believe. And he comes to us today with all of our doubts and disbelief, with our pride and our finger-pointing, with our cowardice and our defiance, and speaks to us, even as Jesus said to John the Baptist, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we confess before you this morning that we, all of us, are prone to straying away from you and prone to taking offense at your revelation which is veiled to us in the flesh and blood person of Jesus. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that understand and see in the face of Jesus the revelation of the one true God who made us and loves us and gave himself for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.